Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. And for those of us lucky to be working in the fields of global health, we are, gosh, reeling from what seems to be major steps backward from the 2022 US Supreme Court decision to reverse decades of access to safe abortion services for women in the US, to the utterly incomprehensible decision by the US House of Representatives not to agree to the approval of the appropriation, the five-year appropriation of funding for PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the jewel in the crown of President George Bush's presidential legacy. Well, as in other areas of human security, from the Middle East to Ukraine, the US appears to be having a, a moment of introspective questioning about its role in the world. To borrow a conversation Margaret Thatcher had with George H. Bush when the world kicked Iraq out of an illegal invasion of Kuwait, this is no time to go wobbly. And to help us make sense of what is going on, particularly from a global health perspective and the cross-cutting imperative of securing the reproductive and sexual health of women across the world, I'm joined by Dr. Anu Kumar, an internationally recognised advocate for women's rights and um, a leader in global health herself. She's president and CEO of IPAS. IPAS is a global reproductive justice organisation focused on increasing access to abortion and contraception around the world. She's worked for the WHO, the MacArthur Foundation, and Anu, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. It's really terrific to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for having me. So for someone who has spent their career fighting for reproductive justice, this must be a very confusing and difficult time. How are you making sense of it? You know, it is uh, confusing in some ways and bewildering. Um, but I guess I'm grateful to have a career in global health because while many Americans are feeling really demoralized about what's happened for around abortion access in the U.S., and it is demoralizing uh, and deeply upsetting, I think, for those of us who work around the world, we can see progress. Um, and the progress is real. It's tangible. Um, and it's really, um, you know, hopeful and inspiring. So, you know, 60 countries have liberalized their abortion laws uh, in the last 30 years. And it's so the, the, the trend towards abortion liberalization, abortion access, access to contraception is unmistakable. And it's quite profound. You know, countries as diverse as Democratic Republic of Congo, as Ireland, as um, Mexico, Nepal have all liberalized their abortion laws and, and have made those laws a reality. There are, of course, a handful of countries that are going backwards, four to be exact, and the United States is one of them. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, the U.S. is not in good company. And as someone who is an American, um, it, that is really disturbing. Um, but I, I don't think that we should feel, um, and indeed, I think those of us who work in global health know that the United States is certainly not the only country in the world, though it is a very powerful one. <laughs> Well, I, I remember when uh, the uh, Supreme Court decision was made that um, a lot of folks who supported it said, well, of course, you know, this is purely a U.S. decision. 
it's not going to affect global strategy. It's not going to affect any other countries. It's our own decision. Um, has that played out in, in, in actuality? Yes and no. I mean, I think it's safe to say that the um, decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has had implications for rights around the world. It has definitely had an impact. Um, it's, but the, the truth is that it wasn't a singular event. I mean, I think for many Americans, it kind of registered as a, you know, as an earthquake or a, a giant wake-up call. Um, but for those of us who've been working on reproductive justice for quite a long time, it was anticipated um, and it was certainly um, predictable. And definitely after, you know, President Trump came into office, uh, we knew that this was going to be, this was going to happen. Um, what it has done is to really embolden conservative forces, both in the U.S., but also around the world. And they are really working hard to take away not just abortion rights, but an array of human rights, um, both here and also, you know, overseas and around the world. Um, the, and I think this is really an important point. I mean, we, we tend to think of, of um, issues, particularly in global health, as being geographically specific, but they're not. Um, and certainly ideology isn't. And, and the extremism that we saw that brought, you know, Roe v, that overturned Roe v. Wade is not constrained by the U.S., by the borders of the United States. It's a transnational movement. Um, and these anti-rights actors are uh, active in places like Ethiopia, in Kenya, in India, in Nigeria, really around the world, and they are feeling powerful. Um, and I'll just give you a, a couple of examples. Um, mm. In Ethiopia, which let me just say that Ethiopia actually has a very liberal abortion law. Um, it has been implemented by the public health system of Ethiopia. Abortions are available uh, throughout Ethiopia, and this is extremely important because Ethiopia is the second most populous country in sub-Saharan Africa after Nigeria. So it's a very important country in, in the, on the continent. Um, but what we're finding now is that anti-rights actors are demonstrating in the streets. They're putting pressure on government officials. They've taken to the mass media. They're more vocal and more organized than ever. Um, and they're really, you know, pushing the Ethiopian government to pull back on its uh, progress on abortion care. Kenya. Kenya has introduced an anti-LGBTQI bill that mimics the one in Uganda. Um, so, you know, India. India has had legal abortion since 1971. And there has been, you know, there have been very few, if no overt anti-abortion campaigns until last year. And last year, we saw a March for Life that took place in New Delhi for the first time ever. Um, so, and, and the, the, the work that these anti-rights organizations or the activism that these anti-rights groups are taking is very similar to what we've seen in the U.S. So, you know, it's, I think this is perhaps the most profound impact of Roe v. Wade is that it's really made these anti-rights actors feel very powerful. And, and I think they have some right to feel powerful. They scored a major victory in the supposed beacon of democracy, the United States of America. Wow. I mean, so much to unpack there, Anu. Um, you know, I think the first thing to, to, to ask you, you, you mentioned Kenya and you mentioned Uganda. And many of the players who were hugely influential in supporting the drive to 
pass some incredibly draconian LGBT, anti-LGBT laws, um, they are also intimately bound up in the um, anti-choice, anti-reproductive justice uh, agenda. Do you see links between um, these two um, more progressive goals in, in, in health and rights? Definitely. And this is not a new linkage. So IPASS has been working on tracking and monitoring anti-rights organizations for over 15 years. And since that time, these two issues have been closely linked. And if you think about it a little deep, more deeply, you'll, it's kind of obvious why. I mean, why do anti-rights organizations go after abortion and uh, LGBTQI issues? Because they're both fundamentally about sexuality and the ability of uh, people to control their sexual lives. Um, and this is deeply threatening to those who purport a sort of, quote, traditional family values uh, approach. Now, that is usually code for a white heterosexual family. Um, and that is something that has been under uh, discussion or even controversy really since the 1990s. Um, so this, you know, this linkage between abortion and, and uh, gay uh, rights is definitely not new, and it's just getting more and more, I would say, fraught and pronounced. So, you know, you you, met, you mentioned that we mentioned we were talking about the Uganda bill. Well, one of the things that's really troubling about the ripple effect that it's had in Kenya is that Kenya was the place that um, many LGBTQI people used to flee and seek asylum. So now that the anti-rights groups have really launched uh, this effort in Kenya, you know, the Ugandans are feeling very trapped. Um, but let me just mention one other linkage. And again, this is about sexuality. The other linkage that I want to mention or the other issue is comprehensive sexuality education. So this is another target for uh, these anti-rights uh, forces. And you see it, of course, in the United States, where the vast majority of Americans support comprehensive sexuality education, but very few schools actually provide it. Um, and this is true around the world. Parents, adults generally support comprehensive sexuality education, but it is often the target of these anti-rights groups. So, for example, um, you know, if you think about the books that are being banned across the United States, well, that's happening in Tanzania. Books yeah. mentioning homosexuality are being banned in Tanzania. Um, you know, so these things are really these are related issues, and it's it's so when I when I you know when we think about abortion, particularly in the U.S., we must contextualize this and remember and 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 remember that it's linked to um, issues of LGBTQI, comprehensive sexuality education, and I would say even more broader than that. It's linked to human rights in general. And human rights also include civil and political rights, such as voting. Well, this is, this is where I, I wanted to, to sort of explore with you. Two, two more questions on this. The first is, uh, I wonder if it's not just about control of sexuality, but, but control period, perhaps, control period of uh, women. Um, as you were talking and mentioning books that were being banned, um, I went right back to The Handmaid's Tale and, uh, you know, wondering, are we, you know, perhaps uh, in that world, um, Canada remains free and the United States becomes the Republic of Gilead, a sort of a theocracy that basically excludes women from 
any expression of their rights beyond, well, their responsibility is to have children, basically. And it struck me that perhaps you and I might be um, Canadian academics sitting there commenting on what's going on in the Republic of Gilead. But, but, but here's the thing. You spoke about voter rights. I'm really seeing that much of the agents that are from the right that are pushing these agendas, they've been around for a while. They're not new. And they have a very explicit agenda of, of, of uh, I, I, you can't even call it going back to, but creating um, a very male-centric, white-centric um, uh, world where, uh, how shall I put it, everybody knows their place. Um, am I being um, overly dramatic in that, or, or do you see that as well? I wish you were <laughs> being overly dramatic in that, and I wish it was that we were living uh, in not we were not living in Margaret Atwood's world. I mean, I read that novel when it first came out, and then I reread it recently. Um, and it is disturbing to see how close she has come to describing our current reality. Um, we are living in a country right now in the United States where women are being forced to give birth under uh, against their will. We're living in a in a country where women um, are experiencing higher levels of maternal mortality than previous generations. Mm-hmm. So we are not making progress on that. Uh, we're living in a world where there is tremendous inequality in maternal deaths and other forms of inequality, not just not just that one. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it's too extreme. And I and I do you know having been in the global health sector for some time, I remember being in the 1994 International Conference of Population and Development in Cairo, where these issues were being very much um, you know. Dis- discussed and 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 uh, debated, and there was a whole conversation around the meaning of the world family. Yes. What does it mean? What does family mean? And uh, and you know, the 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 right. And at that time, it was the Vatican and I think Yemen that were objecting to the definition of family as being anything but a heterosexual union that existed solely for the purpose of procreation. Um, and so. This is this is the root, I think, of what we're at, at here. What we're seeing now is this rise of extremism. Is you know, and I think you're exactly right about female sexuality in particular, um, but also sexuality that is not for, or sex that is not for procreation, um, and that is you know a lot of sex. <laughs> so it's, right. they're they're, <laughs> they're targeting a very large swath of people. Um, and it's interesting how successful they be- they are because it is by no means the majority of uh, people anywhere. I mean, our own research at IPASS shows that um, nine out of ten Americans do not support an abortion ban. Mm. They just don't, mm. and majority of public opinion, you know, corroborates that. Pe- Americans just don't think that this should be as heavily regulated as it is currently being. You know, so. What we're seeing is a disconnect in our political lives between our elected representatives and our actual, the views of their constituents. You see that most profoundly in places where, um, in states in the United States that, are, that have been gerrymandered. And that's why I think this is li- related to voting. When you suppress the vote, you are suppressing the, the will of the people. Um, and the will of the people, at least when it comes to abortion and sex education 
and gay marriage is to be more accepting and inclusive. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of um, the uh, Washington Post columnist, Jennifer Rubin, who uh, commented that, you know, we're not dealing with pro-life activism. What we're dealing with um, uh, is a court decision that has led to uh, forced birth legislation. So some really awful, awful stories of women being forced to carry non-viable um, uh, fetuses to term, um, let alone, you know, having the ability to decide when and it's right to have a, uh, and they're ready to have a, a family. Um, the other thing that you had mentioned was uh, in relation to to Kenya, to India, was this sense, and you you, you really do see it across the continent of Africa, certainly, um, that um, you know there is a a knee jerk reaction against the kind of global health and reproductive health activism and advocacy that you and I have been a part of for our careers, um, and that it's it's not African. You also hear it being said that it's not Indian, and yet the the impetus the drive the support for this is actually coming from us organizations and it's interesting to me that it's this is happening at a time when within the global health community we've done our own sort of reflections about what perhaps haphazardly we're calling decolonialization and i know that's something that's of great interest to you um, but if you could help us sort of join the dots from, you know, us beginning to see how we need to be partners, even supporters of local leadership, uh, as opposed to a different kind of uh, uh, white northern colonialism. So I think it's really important when we start this conversation to think, um, to try not to think in binaries. Um, I think that binaries are actually part of the colonial project and the colonial mindset. Um, divide and conquer was a very successful strategy, uh, and it has actually also worked in dividing our thinking as well. And the reason I say that is because um, I don't actually think that where you're located, particularly today, is as relevant um, any longer. Uh, so whether you're based in the U.S., whether you're based in Europe, whether you're based in Africa is less important than what your uh, what you know. What expertise do you bring? And and what I mean by expertise isn't just sort of the degrees and the um, education that many of us have had access to, but also the lived knowledge and experience of people. So I'm an anthropologist by training, and one of the things that I did as an anthropologist early on in my career was to talk to women about their reproductive decision making. How were they making decisions? What were their constraints? What were the factors that they were taking into account when they were choosing or not, in some cases, to have children? Um, and, you know, when asking people, and I've, I've actually asked women all over the world now throughout my career this question of, so how do you, how, how did you, how did you decide to have these children? Or, you know, what, what led to that you having two children or three children or eight children? And, um, some women will definitely say, well, you know, it's uh, God's will. Um, but even God's will is often uh, followed up with God's will. And, you know, I, um, 
I, I really wanted to pursue my education. Or I, and, and, you know, I have yet to meet a woman who has said, I would really like to have 14 children. I would like to have the maximum number of, of uh, births that I am reproductively capable of. Um, nobody has said that to me in over 30 plus years of asking. So the reason I say that is that I don't actually believe that the uh, idea of being able to control your body is foreign in any way. I think it is fundamental to who we are as human beings, whether that human being happens to be in Malawi or in Minnesota. I think it really doesn't matter. People want to be able to control their lives, their bodies, to have autonomy, to be able to make decisions. And many of us who entered global health did so because we saw that those um, decisions that, and that, that people's lives were constrained because they didn't have access to good health care. You know, in mm-hmm. many cases, they didn't have access to clean water. They didn't have access to clean food, clean air. And so, you know, I've selected reproductive health care as the area that I've worked in. But, you know, many of our colleagues work on water, which is still a major public health issue. In 2024, there are still people on the planet that do not have clean water. That's ridiculous to me. But anyway. It's absurd, uh, isn't it? It really yeah. is. I mean, it now... A Shot in the Arm is uh, hosted by the Global Listening Project, which was founded by another anthropologist, Heidi Larson. And um, I can uh, recall Heidi saying to me that when she was talking uh, to uh, uh, respondents in uh, Nigeria around vaccine hesitancy and their anxieties and what, were they, what was, was top of their list when it came to COVID-19, well, it wasn't COVID-19 or vaccination. It was food security, water security, job security. So um, I, right. I, I do think that you anthropologists have a incredibly important role in the 21st century in uh, helping us join these dots. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, I, and, that's, and she makes an excellent point. I mean, at IPASS's work, you know, we do focus on access to abortion and contraception. But we see it as being linked to so many other issues. So, for example, we also are, many of our programs work on gender-based violence. We have started to work on climate and climate justice and the linkages between climate and SRHR and sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, we also support community-based organizations that are working on a wide array of issues. You know, just uh, general development or community, ba- you know, community-based organizations that are working on employment, for example, or youth development or anything. And we are supporting them to make the connection between whatever it is their mandate is and sexual and reproductive health and rights. So, you know, it's not that we, that abortion on its own is the only thing we should focus on or worry about. In fact, quite the contrary. I, I really firmly believe, and IPASS believes, that abortion must be mainstreamed. It is just another health procedure. And as such, it should be part of public health care delivery everywhere uh, and for anyone who needs it. Yeah, no, no disagreement here at all. Um, and again, this sort of comprehensive approach to a whole person living uh, and for girls and women access to abortion services, access to 
reproductive health services, these, these are central, as is education, but they're all central. Could we talk a little bit about IPAS itself and the evolution that you have um, uh, been part of? I was going to say that you've led, but that would be, you'll, you'll um, chastise me for getting that wrong. But you've been part of a process that has begun sharing leadership and governance across all the partners around the world. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I want to start by saying that we began the work of thinking about how to um, change IPASS based on and because of our mission. And just what we were just talking about, sort of the, the need to prioritize and um, elevate the voices and work of our colleagues uh, that are working in, in, in our program countries. Um, and so our strategy, IPASS's strategy, really, you know, we, we've, we have an abortion ecosystem approach. And the abortion ecosystem, and we've defined it, we've defined what does it mean to have a sustainable abortion ecosystem. Um, and that ecosystem is uh, different in every location. It's obviously contextually specific. And, but the people who can best understand and impact this ecosystem are the people who live there and the people who understand it. So the changes that we've made to our operating model are all in service to making sure that our staff and our uh, our, our our staff who are all local, IPASS has always had local staff in our uh, in our country offices, but they they actually have the most um, decision making authority in, in the organization. So that was part of our thinking. Like, how do we shift? Uh, the balance of power, and at least move the balance of power. And I have to say, it's not that we've shifted it completely by any means, and I'm not sure that we can, because so much of the power still resides in Europe and the United States, and by power I mean money um, and That's right. education. So resources of all sorts still reside there. So I, don't, I'm, I have a hard time imagining where it's a complete revolution in, in that sense, but what we've done is kind of move things down the road uh, a bit. Um, so we've done a few things. We um, One of the first decisions that we made was that we were not going to change our structure as the first thing. Um, many organizations, I think, decide that, okay, we want to completely overhaul our organizational structure. We said, wait a minute. But even if we overhaul our organization structure, we are still the same people. And we still hold the same biases and assumptions and ways of working that we have always held. And so we began by trying to change our behaviors and our practices, sort of the, you know, the things that make up culture, going back to being an anthropologist, things that make up, uh, you know, organizational culture, behavior, processes, decision-making practices. And we, and we adopted a management approach called shared leadership. Um, where we make decisions by, based, and it's not cons consensus, it's not a consensus model, but it's mm. a model that invites feedback and comment from people who would no, not ordinarily be invited because of the hierarchical structure that typically exists. So I'll give you an example. Money is always a good example, right? Um, so when you're making a, when we're making budget decisions, we have um, we have, of course, a budget committee. But the budget committee actually is not, it, it, it consists of staff from across the organization. It also changes over time. 
And everyone in the organization, every unit in the organization can come before the budget committee and present their budget and make their case for why they have um, you know, allocated their resources in the way they have or why they've asked for more money or whatever they may have done. So, um, and it's completely transparent. Um, we know who the budget committee members are. Everybody knows. We know what the dates are for making decisions. We know what the process is. We know they report back to the organization. You know, so I think transparency is another really key factor here. Um, and we have made structural changes. Um, in the last several months, um, we actually have done away with our executive team, which is not to say that we don't have executives. We do have executives. So I'm still a CEO. We have a chief operating officer and we have a chief financial officer. But other than those three positions, um, and those three are kind of there because the IPAS US office is still the financially consolidating office, still about the money. <laughs> um, and the money actually drives a lot of the decisions uh, in this. But the overall, the top governing body of the organization is now called the Network Leadership Group. We adopted a network model for our organization rather than a traditional hub and spoke model, which made the US one node in the network. And the Network Leadership Group is selected by staff. There are five members, two from Africa, one from Asia, one from Latin America, and one from the United States. And we established criteria, and then people sort of um, raised their hands and said, yes, I would like to be on this group. And then staff across the network voted on who should be on that group. I am not on that group. The COO is not on that group. The CFO is not on that group. So it's a representative group, and they can only stay in their positions for two years. Does it not lead, though, to – here's the criticism that might be leveled against it. Yeah. Let's say a degree of cacophony or a sense of no strategic direction. Yeah. Um, and, and what does it mean for people who are, in your case, president, CEO, or perhaps executive director of a, of a country partner? How does all of that work, and 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 how do you counter the argument that it you know it just becomes now basically lacking in structural um, and strategic direction? So as I began, as I was describing it, we started with our strategy, and one of the things to bear in mind is that IPAS is a very niche organization. We work on abortion and contraception, and while we connect those to other issues, we still work on abortion and contraception. <laughs> We don't work on HIV. We don't work on childhood immunization. We don't work on clean water. We don't work on 101 other things. We work on this, on these two areas and only those two areas. So we are experts in that. And I think that kind of focus really helps in diminishing the cacophony, as you're, as you're suggesting, that could arise. I, I, I do agree with you that, the, um, that, the, uh, that we need to spend a lot more effort on communication now than we ever did. Um, because it is absolutely not taken for granted that people across the organization know what's happening. It's much harder to figure out what's happening. You have to work harder to understand it. And there's definitely a degree of, because we also created these nodes and said, okay, you know that you nodes are more autonomous now. You're able to make decisions on your own without going up and down the chain of command. It means that there's more, um, we're more diffuse. And that could lead to fragmentation. That's definitely uh, a fear, um, but it's early days for us yet. 
we haven't, you know, we haven't uh, arrived at that uh, at that problem uh, yet. But in addition, we also created a group called NetCare, and that group of staff is responsible for the care and feeding of the network. So hmm. recognizing that you can't just leave it to chance, you can't just, you know, say, okay, well, everybody figure it out. You know, please read your emails, and then you'll understand what's happening. You know, that it doesn't work like that. Um, so. We've invested in actually creating a group of staff, you know, this, this unit of, of staff from across the, the network that is helping us stay in touch, stay coordinated, be aligned. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. It is, it is early days yet. We'll see what happens. As you what say, early days. And I, and I think we could probably have an entire podcast on this very issue because so many uh, organizations are having these, these same issues and, and trying to address them in a um, uh, a, a really holistic way. Um, just finally on this, uh, you said it's early days. When do you think you'll be able to say, yes, we did it or, uh, you know, we need to, uh, we need to rethink. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that. I think I'm going to, from, from my point of view, I think it'll require at least, um, another 18 months for it to kind of settle in. Um, we do have an evaluation plan, you know, we have sort of metrics for success and uh, and we're evaluating as we go along. The beauty of this is that we made this up so we can change it. You know, like mm. we, this is all within our control. Like, if we, and, and we have been, we have been changing things along the way when we realize that, oh, we forgot we didn't think about that or, oh, we should have attended to this or, you know, and so we can change it along the way. There's nothing, nothing here that has to be done a certain way. It, it, it's tremendous um, in terms of our, the creativity that, that we're able to bring to the organization. One thing that I'm seeing already that I think of as a success is we are seeing a lot more collaboration across the organization that does not require staff going through the U.S. office. So no longer is sort of the U.S. kind of holding the information or the, the resources uh, and, you know, directing country staff to other locations. Country staff are now directly going to each other for technical expertise, for operational ideas. Um, and what we're seeing is almost like a ball of yarn of, you know, connections that are being made, which is kind of what I had in mind, really. What we were hoping for is kind of like this, so that we're all, we're all kind of wrapped up and the ball of yarn is moving, <laughs> propelling down the hill. <laughs> oh, well, uh, we'll be watching your progress very closely. And, and, you know, the invitation is always there to come back and, you know, tell us how it's all going. One of the other things that we wanted to talk about when we were first putting this uh, podcast idea together with you was PEPFAR. And um, obviously, we've not been able to get um, Congress to approve the usual five-year spending plan, the appropriation, as we said. And, um, and a lot of the reasons for that coming from someone who used to be an ally of PEPFAR, the uh, representative Chris Smith from New Jersey, is again all about abortion. And I just wondered again, joining the dots between what we were saying in the post-Roe environment, whether this came as a surprise to you um, and, and whether we perhaps should have been better prepared for, for this sort of knee-jerk reaction. 
It it was a surprise to me. Um, although I guess it, in retrospect, it shouldn't have been because, you know, the anti rights groups are so creative uh, in in their in their work. Um, but you know, like many, I think I had you know PEPFAR has enjoyed bipartisan support for twenty years. It's been renewed every five years without incident. There hasn't been any controversy. And this latest battle is just um, really shocking because it's you know completely preposterous. The assertion that PEPFAR money is being used for uh, abortion services is absolutely ridiculous. And I found it particularly disturbing because as uh, the head of IPASS, I mean, I've been working and IPASS has been working to repeal the Helms Amendment. Which is in place. <laughs> so it was. And, really... and did you want to just remind our listeners and viewers outside the U.S. Uh, about the Helms Amendment and what it is? Yeah, absolutely. The Helms Amendment—it's a U.S. policy that prohibits the use of U.S. foreign assistance funds to pay for abortion as quote a method of family planning. Um, and in, but in practice, it's been uh, you know implemented as a complete ban on abortion-related services and information. It should not be confused with the gag rule, though it is often confused with the gag rule. The gag rule is an executive order. That executive order comes usually into force um, when a Republican president is in the White House. And it is a, a, an order that says that foreign NGOs cannot use private money to advocate or refer for abortion uh, abortions. Um, but that is the gag rule is sort of insult to injury on the longstanding Helms Amendment which is part of the, you know, uh, it's like part of a congressional act. So um, to allege that PEPFAR was using um, money, you know, U.S. government funds for abortion was completely out of the question. Um, so, yeah, so it, I think it is really, it's really quite a shocking development and very concerning because, as you know, uh, so many millions of people rely on on PEPFAR and on the, on the, those resources for resources to save their lives. And coming out of COVID, um, you would think that pandemics were and mass epidemics were were still in the front of our mind. And you know, the work on AIDS is by no means over. So, yeah, not at so all. So we're having these conversations at the um, at the beginning of 2024, big year for the United States. There are elections, as in so many of the. Uh, democratic countries around the world. Um, what's your sense of, of how things are playing out? And particularly now that we're seeing what's likely to happen in, well, I suppose on both, uh, in both parties, but particularly in the Republican field. I mean, I think what we're seeing is um, increasing interest, of course, in abortion rights here in the US and mobilization of voters over that issue. Um, which is somewhat heartening. I mean, I've certainly in my you know on nearly 30-year career in global health, I've never seen American voters actually vote on abortion. So this is it's exciting to see that. Um, I hope it kind of continues. I have to say, I'm a little bit worried that Americans will lose uh, focus and lose att attention and uh, prioritize other issues. So um, I, you know, I am concerned about that. I think we have to be really worried about what's you know this the likely presidential matchup that we're heading for you know Trump v Biden um and you know we don't have to guess very much about what a second Trump presidency would mean the the truth is that uh, project 20, 2025 which is 
a presidential transition project that was um, uh, that has been done by the Heritage Foundation tells you exactly what uh, a future President Trump would do. Um, and he relied heavily. They, the Trump administration relied heavily the last time on the Heritage Foundation. I'm really glad you you, you mentioned Project 2025. Um, I was looking at the members of its advisory board before we came onto this call. And lo and behold, friends of ours that we have clashed uh, with over the course of the years, the Family Research Council, the people who were really influential in driving the anti-LGBT law in Uganda, the very same people who've been pushing um, anti-abortion legislation and campaigns around, uh, around Africa, and very active in India as well. And so I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. We know exactly what we're going to to get. Um, and from both a governance, democratic governance perspective, and from a public health perspective, we do need to be concerned. What can we do about it, apart from vote? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I mean, I think your point about the groups that are involved in these efforts is is really important. Um, I think many Americans certainly are not aware of these organizations, don't know who they are, don't know what they're doing. So Family Watch International is a big one. Um, it's the, you know, it was the one that was behind the Uganda LGBTQI law. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the leading U.S.-based organizations that has, uh, you know, impact around the world. It's grown in, and it's, uh, you know, continues to grow from a, a small state group to an international group. They claim to be international experts, um, and they're, you know, really pushing pseudoscience and disinformation. So that's a really powerful group. Another group to be really conscious of is the Alliance Defending Freedom. The Alliance Defending Freedom is um, an advocacy, uh, far-right legal advocacy and training group, and it has supported criminalization of sexual relationships between LGBTQI people um, and it is behind it. They also have offices around the world, not just in the U.S. They are the ones that are behind the Mifepristone case that has been brought to the FDA to, uh, re, you know, to remove Mifepristone in the United States. And it should be noted that Senator Josh Hawley's wife, Erin, is a lawyer on that case and is a senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom. So what we're seeing is a close connection between the Republican far right and these organizations that are pushing this agenda. And then finally, CFAM is another group I wanted to mention, which is a U.S.-based anti-LGBTQI organization that has consultative status at the United Nations and has significant access to U.S. policymakers, particularly those that have been in in the Trump administration. All of these organizations and more are going to feature very prominently in a future Trump presidency. So, I mean, I think it's really incumbent on voters, on Americans to, you know, connect the dots. Um, and then, and really think about who uh, who do we want to see uh, in in these in these roles and in these positions of power? One of the things that's really clear is that Republicans have absolutely no compunction about putting in extremists in critical policy roles. I mean, the head of um, HHS last time was literally tracking menstrual periods of migrants. Okay. So these are the people that we can expect to see again in power. Um, And, you know, I think we just need to ask ourselves, is this what we want for ourselves? And let me just go back to one of my first comments, which is the United States is one of four countries to go backwards 
on abortion rights and abortion access. We are not in keeping with the rest of the world. I, I suppose we should be ever so slightly reassured about that. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> now, we're, we're getting to the top of the hour, and I, and, and I guess one final reflection from me is that uh, you, you have always been like this, but particularly in this conversation, you've been very direct about saying the word abortion. And, um, you know, in the field that we work in, so for so many years, we've said, oh, reproductive and sexual rights and health, or we've referred to family planning or uh, pregnancy advisory um, services and, and so forth. You're very directly saying abortion. And I wonder, as a final question to you, whether you feel it's really incumbent on, incumbent on us now to speak it like it is. This is about abortion. It is healthcare. It is part of ensuring um, whole person health for girls and women. So many years ago, I wrote a paper on abortion stigma, and it kind of launched this whole field of research and advocacy on the topic of stigma. And one of the things that I, I talked about in that article that I wrote with, with colleagues and subsequently to that is that how important language is and how um, language can be so deeply stigmatizing. And by kind of running around the word, we actually end running around the word abortion, we end up stigmatizing that word abortion. To me, the Helms Amendment stigmatizes abortion. It's the only U.S. policy that singles out a medical procedure. And, and it's the only foreign aid policy from any country that's, that mentions a medical procedure. And it, you know, to me, it stigmatizes abortion. So, so yeah, I mean, it's so interesting right now for IPASS. So IPASS is 50 years old, right? We've been working on this topic for a long time. And we're working now in the United States as well. And when we see finally people say abortion is healthcare like you just did, it's so gratifying because for all, for nearly all of our history, we've been saying abortion is a matter of human rights and it's a matter of public health. And it's kind of just that simple. I mean, I've, we've talked about the politics of abortion on this podcast, but in my opinion, it should not be a political matter. It's a health matter. It's a between matter. a patient and her doctor. Or on her own, increasingly yeah. on her own. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's 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 her, you know, it's the person's decision to decide what to do and make what to happen in, in their lives. And it's just, you know, it, it doesn't need to be adjudicated and it doesn't need to be singled out. It's just a simple medical procedure. And it's just fascinating how uh, it becomes so politicized. And I think a lot of that politicization has actually come from the U.S. and from the U.S. Yeah. right wing, you know exporting this uh, ideology around the world. And you rightly corrected me that it is a decision for the woman. It's not a decision for um, her physician. It's, it's, it's her decision. Well, Arno, I, I guess you have a very busy year um, ahead of you, um, right across the spectrum, um, from developing the IPASS network to uh, fighting the good fight in the United States and providing women with uh, access to information and services in the United States as indeed anywhere else. 
Um, I do hope we can stay in touch and that as uh, things evolve this year, we can check in with you and see how things are going. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to Dr. Anu Kuma from IPAS and all her team. Thanks to our executive producer, Erica Spera from Newsdoc Media. Uh, Nick Matuma and the team at Giraffe for their production support. Thanks also to Waisha Raphael, our production coordinator. And of course, a big thanks to you. Now, don't forget to subscribe, give us five stars. Remember that a Shot in the Arm podcast is a project of the Global Listening Project. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Thank you.